0: welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Acheson. In response to the emergence of COVID-19, the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning has been producing an ongoing series of podcast episodes related to issues around the provision of family planning services while coronavirus is still present throughout the United States and U.S. territories. Our guest today is Dr. Antoinette Wen from Emory University's School of Medicine, where she is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology. Dr. Wen received her MD and MPH from Emory University and completed a fellowship in family planning at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Wen has extensively worked with underserved communities to provide family planning care both in the U.S. and in rural South America. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wen. We're so excited to have you here. So let's just go ahead and get started with a review of COVID-19 and hypercoagulability. I know that new information is coming out all the time, but what do we know right now?
1: First off, Catherine, thank you for having me on today to speak. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic and you're absolutely correct. There is new information coming out daily about COVID-19, almost so much that it's like learning from a fire hydrant and trying to sift through all the data to get to what you need. But we are seeing an association with COVID-19 infection and hypercoagulability, and this may lead to increased risk of arterial thrombosis. So that would be like a stroke or myocardial infarction or heart attack or venous thrombosis, such as a deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. This risk may be higher among those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. And so there's been some postulations on what are the possible mechanisms for this association, and that could be hypercoagulability. We're seeing elevated levels of procoagulation factors such as D-dimer. It could also be a direct effect on the endothelial cells in which you're getting direct endothelial damage in the vasculature. And with all severe illness, there's also immobility. And so what you also see is venous stasis. And so there's a lot of different mechanisms that could be leading to increased risk of clotting or thrombosis with the COVID-19 infection. However, much of the data that we currently have on thrombosis in COVID-19 is limited and primarily focuses on hospitalized patients with severe or critical infections. So there was a recent systematic review that looked at the incidence of venous thromboembolisms, and we call that VTE, among COVID-19 patients. And this included 11 studies of hospitalized patients, almost 1,400 patients. And the VTE incidence ranged anywhere from 0 to 35% and as high as 54% among ICU patients. Of note, many of these patients were actually receiving anticoagulation and were on prophylaxis. That being said, there is also some evidence that the risk of thrombosis is higher than expected among COVID-19 infections. That it's not just due to being severely ill, being critically ill and in the ICU, but that there's probably something about COVID-19 in and of itself that's making you more at risk for clotting. But what's important to note is that almost all of this data is from those who are severely or critically ill and require hospitalization from their infection. This systematic review that I just referenced, none of those studies that were included actually looked at the incidence of clots in the outpatient setting. So we really don't have much data on the risk of clotting with asymptomatic disease, mild COVID-19 infection who don't require hospitalization. So while we do have some data, I think there's still a lot of unknowns about this outpatient setting, those who aren't critically or severely ill.
0: And that brings us to kind of our next question. The vast, vast majority of our listeners are family planning providers who do see people only in the outpatient setting and deal with hormonal contraception, which, again, is a risk factor for blood clots, hypercoagulability. Are the processes that lead to hypercoagulability with contraception similar to the ones with COVID-19? Can they kind of work together that way?
1: Catherine, this is a really important question. And I think the main takeaway from our podcast today is that there's still more unknowns than answers. So yes, we know that estrogen in combined hormonal methods, such as the pill, the patch, the ring, those increase the risk of arterial and venous thrombosis in both the general population. So healthy users, but also among those with medical conditions, right? So those are people who already have an increased risk of thrombosis. And then you add on this um, estrogen component. So history of people with a history of clots, people with a known thrombophilia or genetic mutation, uncontrolled hypertension, migraines, or yes, we already know that, right? We have guidance about that. And what I just said previously is, yes, we also believe that severe COVID-19 infection can increase the risk of thrombosis. But what is unknown is that interaction between COVID-19 infection and hormonal contraception among hormonal contraception users, especially those who are using estrogen, right? Because we think that most of the risk for clotting is because of the estrogen. And is that risk different based on the severity of COVID-19 disease? And unfortunately, there isn't really high quality evidence that looks specifically at this question, at this interaction. So we could look at a different population to use as a proxy, right? So we could look at pregnancy and postpartum patients. So we know that in this population, they have a higher baseline risk of clotting and thrombosis compared to non-pregnant women of reproductive age. And so if we look at this and use it as a proxy, we could see, is there an increased risk of COVID-19 related thrombosis? I am not aware of any current studies that report on an increased risk of thrombosis among the pregnant or postpartum patients with COVID-19. However, all of this is muddied by the fact that a lot of people who are hospitalized with COVID-19 end up getting anticoagulation and thromboprophylaxis. So it's really hard to tease out what that baseline risk is. But I think we can feel at least a little reassured that there's no like canary in the coal mine because we don't have evidence about the outpatient population of reproductive age women. But if we use the patients who are pregnant and postpartum as a proxy, we're not really seeing a huge increased risk. I also want to point out, there's still a lot about COVID-19 that we don't understand. The pandemic is unfolding in front of our eyes. We believe that females appear less susceptible to COVID-19 than males. In some countries, there's lower incidence, lower mortality. So there've been some commentaries and some basic lab work, but nothing that's played out in bigger population health or epi studies talking about can estrogen actually be protective? Is there something about estrogen that maybe influence inflammation, immune function, the expression of the ACE2, which we know is related to COVID-19? So I think we have to bear in mind that, yes, estrogen can increase the risk of thrombosis. Do we really know what that interplay is between estrogen and COVID-19? No, but could estrogen also be protected in ways that we still don't understand? I think I really am offering more questions than answers today, but I think that is just the reality with a, a novel pandemic that we're facing right now.
0: Of course. And and these are important questions. And right now, like what you said, we're not really seeing that canary in a coal mine effect. However, I know a lot of our clinicians look for guidance on what to say to their patients. So if, for instance, one of our listeners, nurse practitioner gets a call um, from a patient who says, I just tested a positive for COVID-19 and I've heard about, you know, blood clotting and you said that was a risk factor with contraception. What should their clinician advise them? If anything, in regards to their contraception use?
1: Yes, excellent question. So, I do want to give a plug to a couple um, professional organizations that actually have put out guidance on this topic. So, ACOG, as well as the Society of Family Plating. And as you can see from our conversations so far, we really don't have a lot of direct evidence to guide us, right? So a lot of this will be mainly expert opinion or extrapolation from the data we already have that we know about estrogen and other conditions that predispose you to clots. But ACOG essentially says that clinicians should continue to counsel patients and prescribe estrogen-containing medications. So that's for either hormone replacement therapy or contraception as indicated. And based on the individual patient's desires, risk factors, and so a lot of emphasis on shared decision-making. And they emphasize that we should consider the risk of VTE, so venous thromboembolism, is much higher in pregnancy in the immediate postpartum period than the use of exogenous hormones. I think there can be a lot of media coverage on this absolute risk of lots with estrogen. And it's true, it's there, right? There is an absolute increased risk. But I think what's often downplayed is there's also a known risk of thrombosis with pregnancy in the immediate postpartum period. And that should be also discussed when counseling a patient. So the Society of Family Planning has a little bit more detailed guidance than ACOG, and they divide it into the severity of the COVID-19 infection. So the first group would be the hospitalized patients. So if a patient has COVID-19 and it's severe or critical enough that warrants an inpatient stay and requires hospitalization, they should likely discontinue their estrogen-containing method. So whether that's hormone replacement therapy or hormonal contraception. And when recovered and discharged from the hospital, discussions should be made to restart their method while bearing in mind that they've now had a recent severe illness, right? And they may have new comorbidities or prolonged immobilization that may affect their eligibility for combined hormonal methods. So using the CDC U.S. medical eligibility criteria, so the U.S. MEC, to see if there's any new comorbidities, the patient. Patient had previously been okay for estrogen, but now maybe they've had a new clot, or maybe they will be in a long-term rehab facility with immobilization. Maybe they're not a candidate for estrogen anymore. It's important to remember to have that conversation because, depending on how well a person is, they may resume sexual activity. And so, what you don't want is a new recent illness with maybe new comorbidities and the risk of unintended pregnancy. Progestin-only and non-hormonal methods should be continued when possible in this patient population because we don't think that there is an increased risk of thrombosis. Outside of estrogen. And then the second group would be those who are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms and are at home. So in this patient population, Society of Family Planning has said it's reasonable to continue their combined hormonal method. So their pill, their patch, their ring. So my takeaway is I think the guidance for hospitalized patients is more straightforward. If you're critically ill, you're on a ventilator, you're having a prolonged stay in the hospital, you need to focus on treating your COVID-19. But it's important to remember to discuss contraception once the patient recovers. But for those with mild or asymptomatic infection at home, I think this is where you have to use your clinical judgment because the guidance isn't based on a lot of evidence because we don't have a lot of evidence on this. And to consider the patient's baseline health and risk factors and clinical symptoms of COVID-19. So they're at home, but are they immobilized at home for one, two weeks? We're seeing a lot of patients with some of this new long-term chronic sequela from COVID-19. Do they have other comorbidities that may increase their risk of thrombosis during COVID-19 infections? So maybe they would a category two, maybe borderline three with the USMEC, but now you couple it with recovery period that's prolonged from COVID-19. You know, maybe this patient had been eligible for estrogen, but maybe now maybe that's not the best option. So I think you take all of that into account. And you also discuss this with the patient because you can also discuss their sexual activity and their sexual behaviors. And maybe they're not at risk of pregnancy right now. And so they feel more comfortable discontinuing the estrogen. Or they say, you know, I still am at risk for pregnancy. I really want contraception. I want the contraception method that I was on previously. I liked that method. I don't think there's a clear cut answer because with contraception, especially with every patient, there's different values and preferences that get wrapped up into that decision. It's not just safety and effectiveness. And there's always the discussion that if you do discontinue estrogen to talk about switching to progestin only or non-hormonal method, you don't want people just stopping their method and not starting anything or discussing potential other methods that could be safe for them.
0: So we're talking here about birth control as being one of the main ways people take estrogen into their body. Of course, you mentioned that estrogen can be used for other treatments. One of the big ones is treatment for menopause. And of course, patients who are going through menopause are also seen in Title X. What would you advise our clinicians to consider or say to their patients who are on estrogen therapy for menopause? So
1: Catherine, I think I would recommend similarly about hormonal replacement therapy as I would about hormonal contraception. So take into account the other risk factors for thrombosis in addition to the severity of COVID symptoms. You could also considering vaginal versus oral estrogen for potentially a lower systemic exposure. But what I don't think we should be doing is universally stopping all hormonal treatments. This can be really important for improving the quality of life, improving daily functions for these patients. And I don't think that we should be saying that patients with menopause symptoms should be suffering through it when we're in such a data-free zone. So I think shared decision-making is really key here as well. But in general, kind of the same clinical decision-making that you would use for hormonal contraception, you, you should be using for hormonal therapy for menopause.
0: Well, all of this has, again, brought a lot of questions. And of course, things are constantly evolving with COVID. But uh, as of right now, what are two or three final takeaways you would like our clinicians to focus on going forward in their Title X settings?
1: So I think I'm going to reiterate the Society of Family Planning clinical guidance, and that is, in general, with severe COVID-19 infection, you should likely stop your estrogen. With mild or asymptomatic COVID-19 illness, it's reasonable to continue, but engage in shared decision-making. There are so many unknowns at play here. Risk of thrombosis with COVID-19 and hormonal contraception. What are people's sexual activity and behavior during a pandemic? What really is the risk of unintended pregnancy here? What are the maternal and fetal risk of COVID-19 and pregnancy? You couple that with potentially decreased access to family planning and reproductive health services and the existing health disparities and systemic issues in our country and healthcare system. So what I don't want is a pill scare where patients are afraid of the risk of clots with COVID-19 without understanding the known risk of clots with pregnancy. And then they discontinue their method at home and then aren't able to see their provider or talk about any of this. I want our listeners and our clinicians to feel empowered that there is guidance out there. You know, it's not based on a ton of evidence, but it's based on a lot of um, really smart expert opinion and that hopefully more evidence will come out that will finesse or improve our guidance, but
0: that we're all in this together. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wen, and sharing your time and expertise. For more content, search for the Family Planning Files podcast, or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. This podcast is supported by Award number 5 FPTPA-006029-02-00 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the presenters and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS, OASH, or OPA. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files.